0: Welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 203 Crime. Today, we continue our genre based season. Each episode of this season, we're going to dive deep into a particular literary genre, exploring what defines it, what makes it work or not work, interviewing authors, talking to fans, scholars, whomever can help us unlock what it is that makes a genre a genre. And with our second episode, we find a body, a clue or two, maybe some justice, but we will undoubtedly confront the darkness in the human heart as we talk crime. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker, Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic, Todd Goldberg, and essayist and radio personality, Julia Bistow.
1: Hey,
2: Good to see you. I know
1: Todd's ready for this one.
2: Finally, an episode. Yeah, yeah look, I just want to start... I want to say from the top, as the actual expert in the room here, you guys are not allowed oh, wow. to disagree with oh, me. Wow. My word. Oh, after, right. after 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 oh, 200. No. Oh, no. He's finally yeah, cut look, loose. After 200 <laughs> some odd episodes. Because Todd's been holding his ego
0: back all these years. Now now we're going to see the real Goldberg I'm just come saying. Out.
2: After oh, 200 God. some odd episodes, I finally am. like, If I say something, that's just how it's gonna fucking be (laughs) that's it
0: so todd so todd let's talk about this because you know when we first met you when we were when we were all back in grad school together uh i don't think you would have called yourself a crime writer i think you wrote some crime stuff but i don't think you at the time you were sort of just a writer so but you were always a fan of crime in terms of reading
2: right Right when we started grad school is when I sort of made a shift in my career, and it was a it was a a knowing shift. I had always sort of considered myself kind of a literary writer, but all my stories, all my books, always had someone with a gun in them, you know. And mm-hmm. I had come to right. a point, and this we we were all in grad school together in two thousand seven. I had come to a point where I realized, like, look, I'm not I'm not ever going to be Jonathan Franzen. Like that's just not the kind of stuff I write. I'm not ever going to be a premier literary fiction writer. And what I can be though, is a premier crime writer. Like I knew if I really studied the genre and put everything I had into it, the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell would lead me to a career where I could be a really top selling crime writer. Um, And, that's what happened, <laughs> you <know? laughs> well, yeah, it, yeah, and
0: it's it's amazing. But you know what's also interesting to me about what you're saying is that 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 shift that you were going through as an artist, as a writer, uh, I, I feel like liter culturally, all of literature is yeah. kind of going through the same shift. Like we we we, you know, I, I remember in the nineties, we we, but we also just went away from the notion of like genre being a secondary. Yeah to mm-hmm. this other notion of like that you know like the the only serious back then i feel like in the early aughts was the last time that like everyone assumed that the only serious writer would write about what right. troubled families not have a gun mm-hmm. in them now we kind of recognize that you can have a gun in your story you can have an amazing crime book and that is yeah. literary fiction this we've just i mean this is probably you know something we're going to keep saying but like throughout the our, a whole notion of us doing like a genre season is kind of dated, actually.
3: Like, uh oh.
0: <laughs> right? I mean, because I mean now it, I mean everybody writes right. everything it seems like or or you you know because I, I mean Franzen, and not so much, but certainly somebody like Jonathan Leitham who established as a literary you know or Michael Chabon, like the, the the writers of the early author now they write genre or y a or whatever they feel like writing
2: like in the in the 2000s, if you wanted to write a crime novel and you had already established a career doing something else, you had to you had to take on a new name. so like John Banville. Mm-hmm. Became Benjamin Black, or even mm-hmm. even um, J.K. Rowling. You know, she became yeah. I was just gonna say yeah, she became what Robert Galbraith or whatever, and then she just became a horrible person. But that's another. I was another... gonna
1: say she became Robert Durst, and I was like, that's wrong. That's wrong, but
2: it's on the same continuum. Um, no, but oh my God. I I really think that the the dissolving of genre, and you see this in, in books, but you also see it in, in music a lot too. Has a lot to do with it with where we buy stuff, you know. So, when you go to Amazon or bookshop or something, you're not w- literally walking down the aisles marked with what each thing is, you're just buying stuff as you buy stuff. Genre is helpful right. to categorize things in the store, like so you know, like, oh, mustard's on this aisle, I'm not going to find Captain Crunch on this aisle, also. Um, oh, you know, right. uh, romance novels are here. I'm not also going to find steampunk here. That's helpful when you're mm-hmm. in, in a physical space. Online, it has it has absolutely no use whatsoever, except to make you feel good when you look at your rankings on Amazon.
0: So now that we've dem- demolished the notion of genre, genre <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> how let's do, double down. Let's get it. Yeah, let's double down. What because. Crime is one of the. It, well, first of all, it's one of the most popular forms of. of I mean, it's what a lot of people go right. to, right? When they when they go to read something, it is the probably the most popular genre. Um,
2: Actually, I think romance I, is. To be honest, do, we, with you. Uh, yeah,
0: it's romance. Okay, okay, cool. Well, well so here's the question, you know, because you you made this sort of offhand joke, but it's an interesting one where you said everything you wrote had mm-hmm. a gun in it, right? So how do we define crime? Is there an easy way to? Is it that there's a gun is it what you know because it's a big tent yeah we're talking everything from Every crime. cozy crime mm-hmm. you know who who kidnapped a cat <laughs> kind of crime books where nothing really bad happens to silence right. of the lambs or helter right. skelter right mm-hmm. like i mean it, it it runs the gamut
2: well i think the notion of what a crime novel is is really changing right now um and we're going to talk to someone later in, in the episode who. Who wrote what I th- consider to be a great crime novel, but it's an inverted crime novel, which we'll which we'll get to. Um, but we're seeing this this shift. Of course, there's there's cop books, police procedurals, you know, Michael Connolly novels, essentially. But then there's novels about criminals, which is what I do. You know, I write I write about about criminals. I write about bad guys. And then there's the private detectives, and then there's the thrillers, um, and then there is the victim forward crime novels, which you're seeing a lot of. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Steph Cha, remember we, we read her amazing book, mm-hmm. Your House Will Pay. That came out in 2019. Changed the game. Changed the game completely. Um, but also our friend Ivy Pakoda, she's been writing a lot of victim-forward crime fiction. And, and what that is is, I think, also a reflection of what you're seeing culturally um, because of mass shootings and um, these, you know, these horrible crimes perpetuated by typically a, a man with a gun, walking into a place and killing everybody. It used to be we knew the names of those killers. And subsequent to Columbine, we've really done a great job of subtracting the names of those killers out and putting the victims of the crime ahead of that person. And it's taken a long time for crime fiction to react to that, but you're seeing that now too. So there's there's so much that is wrapped up into one genre, but at the end of the day, the, the one thing that all of these books have in common is it someone has either perpetuated a crime or had a crime done to them.
1: Yeah, crime is all around us and I think that for a lot of people that's what's really appealing or like let's say cathartic about crime fiction is like it's a way to process the crime that we're kind of swimming in mm-hmm. on a day-to-day level um or having near misses or whatever as victims not as not like oh I'm almost I almost became a criminal at any second. But, right. you know, like how how at risk are we? You know, right. I think that's something that women are really processing when they're reading crime or listening to my favorite murder and all that stuff. Um, yeah. But, yeah, like we feel like we could be a victim of a crime any day, any time. So to have it wrapped in a story package, like and especially we're mostly talking about fiction, you know, to have it have a beginning, middle and an end is very satisfying and exciting.
0: I I would add to that the the flip side is also true. I think that there is a certain level of at any moment you could become a criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, they and I think like especially Todd when I think about your books and stories there's often this sense of, you know, it's kind of kind of cool to be a criminal, <laughs> you know, or there's there's a sense of empowerment, you know, that your characters are outside of the boundaries. They're willing to do these awful things or you know, to get money, they do these, you know, and that that's kind of fun. and that that the potential that you could at any moment, you know, go from being just a normal everyday American to a you know somebody who's working in the underground or helping rob jewelry or you know doing something with a you know that's i mean that's godfather is still like one of the greatest most popular american movies of all time right and it's basically a, a family business but it's the business of crime mm-hmm. and that's people love that you know sopranos Goodfellas, like we all love being a criminal and so yeah i think that, i think that's exactly right crime one of the reasons it's so popular is is that at any moment we could be the victim of a crime, and we could also commit a crime.
2: Well, people um, love the idea of getting away with it, you know? We all want to get away with it, yeah. whatever it is.
0: Well, and so one of the things that seems... Um, Important if 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 crime really is about the potential and the possibility, it, there's a level of realism that the genre kind of demands. Um, you know, that if 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 you were reading a horror novel, it's like it can veer into the spectacular pretty quickly to get a lot of similar feelings of you know anxiety. But crime is based on a very it's a very realist, realistic yeah, realistic. It has to feel real.
1: It to has good. to feel real. It has to
0: feel real. And so, and so one of the guys we uh, decided to talk to is somebody that Todd has known for a while. Uh, Todd, you want to introduce Lee and tell us why we talked to him?
2: We're going to meet a pretty fascinating guy. His name is Lee Laughlin. And Lee Laughlin is a veteran police investigator who began his law enforcement career working as an officer in Virginia's prison system. He became a sheriff, a patrol officer, and then finally he became a, a, a detective. And along the way, you know, he gained a, a huge breadth of experience that's unusual to find in the career of a single cop, and that's turned him into an expert. And after retiring from, from the job, he's become the go-to police consultant for probably about 25 crime writers that I know. He's consulted on a bunch of different television shows. Um, he's the author of a book called Police Procedural and Investigation, A Guide for Writers, he runs a website called The Graveyard Shift, where you can go and ask questions about law enforcement. Um, he,
0: Okay, but let's talk
2: about the really cool
0: thing okay. He does. Okay,
2: and the last thing he does <laughs> is he teaches you how to be a badass. He <laughs> he
0: teaches a school on how to be he, a cop. He, and runs, he runs
2: the Writers Police Academy, which is both in-person and <laughs> online, and it's the most cool thing on earth. I've talked about it on the show before, but it is a four-day intensive Hands-on workshop where you're at a police training center and you're meeting ATF and DEA and FBI and undercover guys. You're shooting guns. You're driving cop cars. You're you're running into buildings. You're putting out fires. It's larping. It's larping. It's,
0: <laughs> it's live-action role-playing. It, you're basically D and D for writer nerds to become cops. Yeah, really? and,
2: <laughs> it's amazing. And I want to do it so it's amazing. bad. And do he it does so it every bad. summer. They just held it the last time that I went. It, it was it was. Tons of published authors, including Charlene Harris, who writes the True Blood books. She was there. Uh, my brother was there. I was there. There's there's probably 400 people attended, um, all as students. Yeah. And it's, it's well, we'll let Lee talk about it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk to Lee. So, Lee Laughlin, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
4: Thanks. I'm, I'm pleased to be here, and I'm always pleased to be in the company of the great Todd Goldberg, of course.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Lee, how did you how did you get involved with law enforcement?
4: I was as, as a kid. I, I just that's just something I wanted to do, and as soon as I had there was an opening that I was available that was available to me, I applied and I started. That was at a sheriff's office in Virginia mm-hmm. as a deputy sheriff.
2: And how many years were you on the job for?
4: Uh, just over twenty. Oh my gosh. Yeah, just over 22 long, I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and and you started out as, as a beat cop and, and then moved up. What was your career trajectory?
4: I started, as I said, as a deputy sheriff. Actually, I started deputy working in a, jail, in a jail as a uh, as a jailer. It mm-hmm. was the only opening there, and I figured that's my put in the door. And then I was there for about five months, and they put me out on the road as a patrol deputy. And the, the crazy thing is, in Virginia, the, the law there is you can work for a year without going to the police academy. And, wow. Yeah. But, you know, usually you're, you're riding with someone, but the sheriff there, he just said, hey, here's your keys to your car. Here's a gun. Have at it.
3: And, uh, <laughs> oh, great. Right. I worked for
4: 11 months and two weeks. And then I went to the police academy, you know, making arrests. Yeah. The whole thing. And that's that's <laughs> that's that's across the country. That's not just in Virginia. But I mean, that happens. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the worst. And that's that still happens. very comfortable. <laughs> yeah, it, it was pretty weird at first. I mean, the first night I went to work, I was by myself. In the entire county didn't I mean, I had ridden with other deputies, you know, but the first night I actually went to work with my patrol car, my gun strapped to my side. I had to go out by myself and patrol the county and I had to arrest this great big mountain guy who was in a fight. And fortunately for me, he just decided to get in the police car on his own and come with me. But I I agreed not to handcuff him if he got in the car with me. So that's (laughs) it. Wow. I really didn't know what to do with him. So I just carried him. I just carried him home. <laughs> oh, my God. My first big case. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. But from then, you know, then I, I moved into, uh, I, I got heavily into doing narcotics work. And uh, it just, it went from there. Then I ended up becoming a detective in, in the city department.
0: I'm curious about your development as a writer. Um, were you always sort of interested in, in writing and storytelling and then sort of filtered your experience as a, as a law enforcement officer through that? Or was that something that came out of your experiences like while you were, you mm-hmm. know, handcuffing, arresting people? Did you start thinking, oh, I should be writing this down, thinking in terms of story? Or like, how did you, were you always a reader of crime? Like, how did how did these two things come about?
4: When I was a kid, I get as old as, as soon as I could hold a book, I was reading Pope mm. and the Hardy mm-hmm. Boys and, and that's and Nancy, even Nancy Drew and the boxy twins actually right. back then. And I always wanted to write. I liked, I enjoyed English class in, in high school and all that sort of thing. And, and and went on to study more and later on, but I just, I just always wanted to write. I love reading. I mean, I read constantly. Mm-hmm. So I turned this, when I retired from police work, I just turned what I knew into, into writing.
2: When, when you were, working on the job and reading at the same time was there a disconnect between what your reality was and what the writers were doing was that part of the reason why you you ended up doing the police academy itself
4: exactly that, that that's one of the major reasons uh, yeah i mean i would even when i was working radar late at night and you know in, on the graveyard shift, i'd have a book with me and i'm reading something and it would just frustrate me to see where writers would get so many things wrong <laughs> I mean, the intention was good but it was wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what writers get wrong. Like, what are some things that we could see, you know, through your eyes? What are some examples of egregious mistakes?
4: Well, there's always the, the gun problems. I mean, there's, that's, a, that's a big thing. Uh, just basic procedure. I mean, in things like the karate chop to the back of the neck to knock somebody (laughs) unconscious shooting guns out of people's hands and oh it's there's just so many little things that drive people nuts Mm -hmm. when they read it who don't know you know who know these details right and
2: and vernacular also presumably does that or does that not bother
4: you yeah it does it does research is so simple i mean just just ask somebody something and you, you'd have it. Just talk to a cop for 30 minutes. You you'll know their whole life story. <laughs> talk, talk, talk. Cop will talk forever.
0: I'm curious about like, you know, because I, 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 it seems fairly obvious that like the details would be wrong, especially, you know, back in the day. I feel like now we have so much access to information. Really, writers don't have many excuses. But I'm curious about the overall, you um, like, did, was there also something wrong about the sensibility of a, of a, of a cop? Or, you know, were, were writers ever able to, even if they got the details wrong, would they still, would there be writers who you would read and be like, well, they got the they got the spirit of the thing, right? This is what it's like to be a cop, or this is what it's like to investigate crime.
4: Yeah, they're, they're, don't get me wrong. There are many, many books out there. The, the police procedure and the, and the personalities of police officers are all right or correct. They're, I'm not going to mention who, who's right and who was wrong.
3: Yeah
4: And then on the other hand, there were just as many if not more that, that were wrong. So mm. yeah, they, they, they missed the person. That's the thing that gets me. the emotional part aspect of the, of the police mm-hmm. officer, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, his personality, what's going on in their mind. that's what most a lot of writers missed back in the day. It's much Mm -hmm. better now, much better. And I hope we take some credit for that with with the event we do. You you should, you should. I think think we've changed crime fiction the way crime fiction is written nowadays.
2: When you were arresting these guys, and and you and I had this conversation once, I don't know if you remember it, I asked you, um, like, are most of these people evil? And you said to me, no, most of them are drug addicts. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, yeah. Like, they do something because they need money to buy heroin. yeah. And uh, th- like this, this like five minute conversation that you and I had changed the way I write crime fiction because it made me realize like, right, like these guys don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to do some evil shit. They no. wake up in the morning and they say, I need to score or I got my back up against the wall. I need $50,000. How am I going to get it mm-hmm. um, now? But that's that's the difference, of course, between, say, uh, a robber and a serial killer or something, yeah, or a rap or something <laughs> yeah. you know? um did you see a shift in that uh, during your time like like is evil uh, banal or is it a real thing
4: <laughs> in the in the in that book i wrote on police procedure uh if you remember it or not but the chapter on drugs I, mm-hmm. my my tagline on that was drugs not money are the root of all evil yeah. i mean it's not just drugs i mean you know there's always the sex greed that sort of thing too aspect of it but yeah the, most of it is not your serial killer type criminal mm-hmm. they're just everyday people who do everyday things to get whatever they need mm-hmm. and it just so happens that stealing robbing and that sort of thing is what they do
2: hmm. that's their job that's their nine to five yeah that's
4: their night well yeah
2: yeah, not at nine to five a.m yeah um well let's talk about the the police academy I went in with a preconceived notion of what I think police work is really like. Right. And then I went through all these simulations and I got to tell you, the thing that changed my point of view about a lot of things is the, is the armed conflict, who to shoot, when to pull your gun simulation. Cause I was capping innocent civilians (laughs) like, like it was my job. I know I was watching you. <laughs> yeah, Ed Lee, Ed Lee was watching and laughing at me because I was like, I'd never accidentally shoot a civilian, and I was like, Oh, grandma, man, um, I'm gonna pop them all. What
0: is the 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 most surprising thing for for writers to experience? Like, is there is there is there always like the one day or the one experience where they're like completely bowled over and didn't expect something and and, and changed?
4: I wish I could say there was just one thing, but there's just so much, and I think all of it is everything we do is eye opening. And we yeah. usually start the event out. We 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 um have this huge uh, demonstration or a real scenario. We set up a scenario like um, a big car crash and a helicopter lands and they take the victims the, the you know the injured victims away, or we have a car chase and there's a shootout at the end of it. I mean, and, and we do that it's real, I mean, It's just like the police cars chase each other. And I mean, the police chase the bad guy and. And then we put them in police cars, and they drive, and they they uh, do the pit maneuvers. They have the, the car in front of them. It's just, it's an eye opening. The entire thing is an eye opening experience. Just, it is nothing. So do you it. ever,
0: have, do you you ever have, have writers get like kind of traumatized?
4: No, but we have them get uh, quite emotional sometimes, like mm-hmm. especially like in the scenario Todd's talking about, where um, we do the shoot don't shoot thing. the, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, the the workshop there, people get are actually shaking when they when they when yeah. they because they didn't realize how intense that is to to be facing that to be facing that sort of situation where you could shoot an innocent person or so you could be shot because it's it's realistic.
1: What do the cops and other participants like? What do they get out of it from their end? You know, uh, what are they what are they absorbing from the writers?
4: They have learned. Uh, how to investigate crimes in different ways than they ever thought about before because writers are great at coming up with mm. way with things and the police officers that have taught this the law enforcement officers they have thought this was just fantastic because they've learned just things they've never thought thought of before I mean
1: interesting of,
4: yeah they think it's fascinating After don't um, names in a book either an acknowledgement, they like that too yeah one of the greatest <laughs> things I've seen out of this event was uh this one fellow wrote me, and before he registered, he said, I just want you to know, I want, I'd love to come to this, but my brother was, uh, arrested in New York city. He they was, he was taken out of the house by police and they beat him up. It took him to the police station and beat him up. And we didn't know where he was. And it was very, very traumatic. He said, I've hated cops ever since he said, but I write. And I wanted you know to experience this. Will i be welcome there. And I said, of course you will.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So, so he came and, uh, he, you know, he just, he fit in with all the other writers. And one night at the bar, he, you know, everybody loves to go to the bar after all the classes. And all. He's sitting at the bar and, and he told me, he wrote this in a letter to me later, that one of our ATF agents came and sat next to him, just started talking like he does with every writer there, bought him a drink and they were talking. Then secret service agent came over, sat down. They started off you know, they were all talking. And then the undercover guy, the uh, Todd was talking about it a little while later, came in and he bought him a drink not knowing anything about his background, and they just started talking. And he wrote me a letter afterwards saying it was the greatest experience ever. He's totally changed his uh, mm. attitude towards cops. In fact, he even went to the police station, to the precinct station, and talked to the captain who was involved in that beating of his brother. And he said they had a long talk, and it was emotional, tearful, and it was just the greatest thing ever mm. for him. He had some oh, closure
0: Do you have one pet peeve cliche is there one thing that you always see in movies or TV shows that you're
4: just like, no? Yes, there's one that just drives me nuts. When someone, a cop or someone enters a room and the first thing they say is, I know there's been a shooting here because I can smell cordite in the air. Cordite hasn't been around since the end of World War II. <laughs> <laughs> so unless you're writing historical fiction, that's a big no. No. <laughs> What it about what
2: about freeze? Have you ever said freeze?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, no, I have not said freeze. <laughs> another dumb one. I mean, what, what do you want the guy to do? You start shivering or what?
1: That's know. like if the criminal is six years old, they might do it. Right.
4: <laughs> yeah, all that stuff is just ridiculous. Halt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, that's, so that, that's that's a bad one. Yeah, freeze.
2: Yeah, I. Whenever I hear freeze and halt, I think. Of all the cops I've ever known, I've never heard any of these motherfuckers say halt in their real life. Um,
4: <laughs> if, if you were a group of cops were chasing somebody and one of them yelled halt, we would all just stop and look at that guy. Like, <laughs>
0: All right. Well, that was an amazing conversation with Lee. Mm-hmm. I um I just wanna go to this school so bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You'll get
2: there. Uh, Ryder, next summer you and I are going. That's just how it's gonna be. That's just how it's gonna yeah. be.
0: I mean, I, I think there should be like astronaut camp for writers. Hell there should yeah. be, you know, I just, it was one of the things I loved about being an actor. I remember, th- you know, when I was younger thinking like, well, the cool part about being an actor is you get to be all these different jobs. You know, if, if you do a movie about firefighters, you get to go be a firefighter for a while and, and you know, not have to actually
2: die or
1: <laughs> risk <laughs> anything. Know, do, do risk anything real.
2: <laughs> what the police academy shows you is, like, you can write cops really well, and you can write villains really well, too, by knowing their essential DNA from what they do.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's another uh, – it seems like, you know, oftentimes, even when, you know, the cop is sort of uh, operating somewhat outside of the law, in other words, like, you know, often Bosch in the Michael Connolly books – doesn't Doesn't follow the exact procedure. He he, he stretches the law, but it's always yeah. about justice being served, mm-hmm. right? I mean. Uh- Law and Order, the TV show, is probably the best example of this. This sort of soothing message that, like, the cops are out there, somebody's out there fighting for justice in America right. or in the world, right. and and they're gonna get they're gonna you know get the killer or get the criminal and bring them to justice. And that is you know that's a big part of the crime genre is like making us feel better about the world that that something's being fixed by somebody. Right. Um, and I do think you know somebody pointed out to me that po- the the private detective as opposed to the police procedure or the private detective novel, a crime story, is all about police right. corruption. Failure. Right? Because the idea is that it's a failure of the police to be able to do their job. So there needs to be a private detective out there saving the day or or, or serving justice, which is, you know, justice is obviously not always the cops.
1: Yes. Right. <laughs> justice others can know, serve cops or just, justice in more creative ways. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, it's impossible for us to ignore, you know, the elephant in the room, which is that we are living in a time where, because of technology, we have seen the failure of police work from Rodney King up to George Floyd, and then everything that's happened beyond that point, where too often, um, if you're uh, a black man, and you're pulled over by a cop, for whatever you're being pulled over for, there's a real chance you're gonna you're gonna die. And it's you know, that has changed the way books are written, too. I mean, you're seeing a lot less cop novels, a lot less cop procedurals, because I think there's an inherent disbelief in um, the goodness of the police right now. And, you know, the, the, the cops have a lot of work to do to gain the public stress back in that. But I think what you're seeing because of that, too, in fiction is a larger examination of of the social reasons crime is committed. So it's not enough just that, that a crime has been committed and a cop or detective or whatever goes out and tries to solve it. I think we want to know now why this shit is happening. Why do people do the things that they're doing? Um, you know, it's not just about they need money for drugs. There's something, there's something larger culturally and socially that, that has changed the nature of crime.
0: And this next author that we're going to talk to is somebody who is, is part of the complication and creating more of a messy approach to crime, in the sense that you know it's not just justice always being served, um, but that 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 you know what you were talking about earlier, Todd. This sense that the victims are often just as complicated and just as important as the 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 cop or the detective or the crime itself. Right. right?
2: Exactly. Um, yeah. So. The author we're going to bring on, um, Melissa Chadburn, she first came into national prominence as a writer when she exposed um, the literary grifter Anna March uh, in a remarkable essay in the Los Angeles Times. But she'd already carved out a a, a successful career as a community activist and journalist writing for the New York Times, New York Review, a book, Long Reads, Paris Review. Uh, She'd been in Best American Food writing, all sorts of stuff. Um, But then... Her her new novel, her debut, A Tiny Upward Shove, which just came out, is an inverted crime novel. It is a victim-forward novel, but it's also told from the POV of a vengeful spirit and from the POV of the criminal uh, himself. Um, it's inventive, it's new, um, but Melissa's also been affected by living in a small town where... Um, where a significant murder has taken place. Um, So we thought we'd sit down and talk to her about about sort of all sides of the crime world that she's in.
1: Her life in crime.
2: The reason I thought you'd be great to to be on the show as we talk about sort of where crime is in the world and, and how it became so popular, that so you have always written about um, social issues, and mm-hmm. and about how crime is a uh, is both a symptom and a result of social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm curious for you, um, like ethically, when you write about crime, so nonfiction and or in fiction, what's the battle in your head? Are you trying to say like, how do I make this entertaining? Or are you also trying to educate? What what's your thought process?
5: Right. Man, I'm so glad that you see this as a crime novel and that you all are talking to me about this as a crime novel because it is, you know, and um and I and it is it, it's also an intervention on, you know, the trope which often you know it it does start with a death and often their thrillers start with a body oftentimes it's a white woman's body you know and then you're you're following along with the hero of the story and um you're seeking some form of carceral justice and like in this way this is like an trans-Pacific intersectional feminist thriller, I'd say, you know, and that like your hero is the Aswang who is a figure in Filipino folklore. But while I was reporting, while I was writing this, you know, for the 5 billion years that I was in edits, I, <laughs> I had <laughs> other things to pay the bills. And so on this particular project, I was also, and I have um, for a long time reported on the child welfare system, And, um, I was in this, uh, Netflix docu-series, but also reporting on this pretty harrowing case in LA County in the child welfare system. It was a child fatality, um, with multiple interventions. And, um, and so when I was reporting on this case, uh, it was the, the Netflix series is called, um, the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. But Mm. when the parents got sentenced in this case, um, to life imprisonment and, um, the death sentence, uh, respectively, and like the whole gallery just like explodes and and cheers, and there everybody's pleased. And I knew that there were at least four other cases just like it within mm-hmm. five miles. Right afterwards, and so I knew my larger project really needed to trouble our ideas of justice, mm-hmm. and um, and so I think uh, you know. Journalism is limited to the sort of both sideism and um, supposed objectivity, whereas fiction allowed me to like tell the whole story and allowed me to look at um, both justice and mercy. So mm-hmm. I think that that's that's really what I wanted to impress upon to the readers here.
2: That documentary that you talked about, it was one of the most harrowing things I've ever watched in my entire life. It's extraordinarily upsetting. Um but it's also entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Like you watch it in bed
3: mm-hmm.
2: for entertainment. What what does that say about the human animal that we watch this for entertainment?
5: Well I mean but I'm the type of person who uh well one I think I I probably have I will say, I probably have experienced a lot of trauma in my life, but also like, I'm the type of person who I think that people are doing terrible shit all the time. And I want to know about it. Like, I I want to know about it. I'd rather know about it than not. But if you tell me not to look at something, I will like gaze right at it, you know? So I think (laughs) that's that's the thing. And uh, I mean, I do, uh, I do watch copious amounts of garbage tv to like um counteract it well i think any fan of crime
0: is that person (laughs) like i mean that's and in some ways that is the biggest the ethical question about crime as a genre is, is you know and and uh we've talked about how your book is sort of the 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 most extreme example of this trend that has been going for the for a while now which is uh crime from a victim's point of view Mm. you know really sort of centering the victim as the the main character or the you know the victim's voice that you know uh because i feel like you know if you go back even 10 years but certainly like to silence of the lambs or the victims are almost just props Props. you know they're they're just (laughs) like yeah they're like the body and they almost don't matter and um And so I'm curious how much of that was conscious on your part, or is that just where you arrived as a writer, you know, without even really? I mean, mean, were you are you aware of that as a trend, or is that just the story you wanted to tell and it just came out this way?
5: Uh, yes. (laughs) No, I mean, I think it's all of the above. I think
2: I'm really (laughs) well. Thank you for listening to Literary Disco. Um, I.
5: I think that uh, the, that mercy was super important to me. And um, just because I'd always heard that like, regardless of how powerless you are, you at least one thing, everyone has the agency with is mercy, like t- to bestow it or not. And so, mm-hmm. again, like, uh, I think that 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 was definitely something I knew from the beginning. The Aswang figure was something I knew from the beginning. Um, and so for those who don't know, the Aswang is this figure in Filipino folklore who, um, depending on what, where you're from, she could be considered a shapeshifter or she could be like a werewolf or a vampire um or god forbid a spinster you know a woman just living <laughs> alone and uh evilest <laughs> of all witches <laughs> Scary, right <laughs> and um and no matter where you're from uh, most places uh to figure that she has like this long thin proboscis where she can suck up a baby she'll like fly on your roof and suck up babies but with it and so um because that's what women who live alone like to do in their spare time <laughs> 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 but um so and if you were misbehaved as a child like your grandmother would always warn you like you better be you better behave or us will get you but really she arrived um she's a byproduct of colonialism you know um the spanish came to the philippines and all these women had um agency and power and they wanted to scare you away from them and so they would tell you you know that she's oswang so uh, I felt like I knew that she needed to take center in this book and, um, and so she's our narrator and she takes you throughout and, uh, there's, well, there's two, there's the fictive present, which is the Aswang's narrative. And then it tells you, it starts with a death and then tells you how her, how her death occurred. But, um, so yeah, I think that, that she was a great sort of wielder of justice. Um, she she goes back uh, seven generations in this family, and she can uh, she gets to sort of decide whether or not what justice is, even define whether or mm-hmm. not that's mercy or whether or not that's vengeance.
2: Well, so in the middle of writing this book, or I guess at this point is probably editing it, you live mm-hmm. in a small town, um, and a murder took place.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: you wrote this remarkable essay about, and it's a short essay, in the mm-hmm. New York Review of Books about like suddenly living in a in a town mm-hmm. where it's like a small town murder just took place that you would watch on TV. Essentially, um, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. Like, what was that like? Suddenly being aware of the the factions behind the different, you know, who supported who in the murder and who, who, yeah. who deserved what. Mm-hmm.
5: It's just interesting people's the way they deal with their grief about things like in and the way they process they do are very charged with wanting to know what happened and how it happened and what the clues are and and wanting to classify like our sense making capacity gets like it's like somebody pours steroids and all your like sort of puzzle making and sense making capacities you know like <laughs> I knew it. The last time I saw him, he, you know, he yelled at her in a funny way, or just like everybody starts playing back, like where they are in relationship to the deceased, but also like how it happened. And, um, and uh, again, like, I'm always interested in like the larger issue.
2: So when, how did, how did your relationship to the rest of your town change though? After mm-hmm. like sort of evil moved in, not to sound like Keith yeah. Morrison, um, but does that change the way you sort of look at your neighbors?
5: It was just super heartbreaking. I think. I mean, because evil, evil was always there in this other really fucked up way, which is like um, it's a town, uh, it's an anti-government town of libertarians, and so mm. you know, um, there's like all their flags and, uh, um, you know, um, these anti masking actions and stuff. And so I think that like, I was, especially when we had to shelter in place, I was just like, but then there's we're also surrounded by beauty and the Pacific Crest Trail runs behind uh, my house and like right now it's like hiking season so there's all these great um, people who like to walk a lot in town but. um, (laughs) but um, uh, so I think that that was always there but there was definitely like you feel a gap because these people were um, really active in our community uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, they're no longer there Um, and uh, I have mostly spent my time trying to my way of, of working through that was um, I volunteer at like the local pet rescue because they walked the dogs there every day. And so now I try to pay it forward and walk the dogs there every day. And um, uh, so that's, you know, I, I, and that to me is more satisfying than I guess, like, what do you do when something like that happens? And it's like, you can figure out how it happened to make yourself feel a little bit better, but like what, then what, then what? Like what else, what can you do to like make the world a better place? You know, like I also really, like I said, I had to trouble my ideas of like carceral justice too. Like, I don't think like somebody gets locked up and then it's over, um, which is normally the trajectory in a thriller or a true crime, like in a podcast, you know, you're trying to figure out what happened and then The person goes to jail and and it's not over really he had like 200 guns in his house um was like super pro nra and a lot of those guns were not the kind that you should be able to own
3: right
5: Mm -hmm. um that to me seemed like way more interesting than that he like got drunk and shot his wife you know like yeah but that didn't seem to be the end of the story wasn't that this person shot his wife. But for me, I felt like there, there's, I like to look at the larger like instrument here and it's like, why does he have, I mean, there are so many people who were huge advocates for guns in my, in my small town, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that would be something that would be interesting. And this was a year, again, where all these like elected officials were doing those weird Christmas cards, like posing with their families with like AR-15s and stuff. And I just felt like that was the more, the larger crime, you know?
0: You know, what's interesting to me about what, you, what you're saying, Melissa, is that it's, you know, when you talked about like pouring steroids on everybody's brain about, you know, it's it, uh, it's almost like everybody wants to become a writer, uh, uh you know, at, at that moment, they want to solve They all, all want
5: to become a detective.
0: Right? detective. A detective, yeah. right. Yes, and and what's interesting to me about your essay is that in some ways you sort of retreat from the role of like normally, if you were writing a true crime or writing a story about this, you would want to know more. But it's, it sounds like for the first time you actually chose to want to know less in some ways or or, or respect
5: privacy and and move. Oh, take a step back. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I really wanted to push against that. And I think we were trained with that. like. Sarah Koenig-, Koenig started us with like, you know, inviting us to solve the crime with her, mm-hmm. you know? And like, everybody was like, oh, you know, driving around and like recreating the crime scene and doing, uh, so then anybody, anywhere can do it themselves. You know, it's like, right. let's let's drive, let's see if this, if Adnan could drive from his high school to Radio Shack. And it's like, of course he could drive from it like, what does that tell us? It tells us <laughs> nothing, but we have this like, Part in our brain like this sort of critical part in our brain like that lights up where think that makes us feel like we're doing something or achieving mm-hmm. something but then to what end right. you know like i remember listening to this one episode of um of uh what are georgia hards karen hardstark georgia um what you know the murder podcast my favorite
3: murder yeah my favorite,
5: yeah, murder? My favorite yeah. murder and there was this one there's one episode where um one of them was like they were talking about Larry uh, basically you know this man evaded the electric chair because he died of natural causes in prison and she was like man I just wanted him to fry you know and it was just like really, mm-hmm. like, it really? <laughs> <what>? <laughs> do we gain anything from that so I think I just really wanted to like um think about more like what are the larger circumstances at play right. here i'm fascinated with this
1: idea that like we interchange crime and mystery you know mm-hmm. that like every crime is a mystery and <laughs> where <laughs> these two have heard me talk about true crime a lot uh, but like you know i sometimes i'm really into it and other times i'm just like nope there's no mystery we know what happened this is really fucking depressing. And we should back away from that, you know, mm-hmm. from that like urge to like when the mystery is solved, we're like, well, how can we exonerate so-and-so, right. you know, or how can we blame the victim in some way? Like our urge to make a story out of something that is essentially simple, like a guy who owns 200 guns eventually shoot someone with them um, is so... <laughs> it's so interesting that those <laughs> genres live together um mm-hmm. in, in the American mind not just right. yeah. like people have never read a book could could do this kind of storytelling in their own mind
5: yeah for sure I love that I'll also say like you know people are um talk about you know um a lot of the harrowing trauma both in like journalism and in this novel and on all these dark cases that I work on and the truth is is I like to say you know the truth is is that like the crisis for me wasn't entering foster care or finding out I was queer or losing my brother to uh aids like the crisis for me was pretty universal simple thing which is that when i was a little girl i loved everything like i loved all the things i loved my mailbox i loved Uh, my teacher i loved the guy that worked at the liquor store i loved the bus driver like i loved everybody and everything and i assumed they all loved me back Mm
3: -hmm. and then
5: one day i find out found out that wasn't true like that was the crisis Mm -hmm. and um Mm -hmm. so i think that that's that's often what i'm writing about you know that's the original wound right? right right
1: All right. So thank you so much for Melissa with that great conversation. Um, We are we are so into this. We want this episode to be like five hours long. (laughs) (laughs) What what can't be five hours long is a great story. Right. And that is something that we have you know really chewed on with this genre is it's just a good story like we know the story beats of crime and we're rearranging them and inverting them um and yeah so for you guys what are what's a perfect crime story or what's like what is the story of crime why are we so into this
0: well it's it's i feel like the 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 easiest answer is that something has always been Like crime is the most basic story, right? Because something has something has gone wrong. Somebody broke a law or did something bad, and that immediately makes anything more interesting. You know, like if if I tell you I saw my neighbor picking flowers in his yard, it's like okay, who cares? But if I tell you that he wants buried a body there, and now we're seeing him pick, you know, suddenly I'm like, what? Who? And so no matter what. What what angle I take on that as a, as a storyteller that that central violation that crime at the heart of it makes everything mm-hmm. more interesting you know the, suddenly the way that neighbor talks or the way he walks so so the how the why mm-hmm. the who you know and there's so many different angles sometimes people just want to read about how a crime was committed from the point of view of the killer other times people want to read how the crime was solved or you know it's just it just becomes everything becomes good story because at the heart is something awful something bad happened
1: there's tension not only between people but between society and rules and you know all that good stuff so there's tension like in multiple directions it's not just why did this person kill this person it's what are all the forces that led them to be together in this moment and pushed somebody over the edge
2: i love that notion of everyone's got a code right everyone's got a code in this game um but you know, crime though, I think we we find some of this stuff funny, but there's always there's always a consequence, right? There's always a consequence.
1: And so, on that note, we wanted to talk to someone who lived through a crime story who isn't creating them whole cloth, although he has turned it into uh, a writing career as well. So. We are excited to talk to our friend, um, Ross Angelella, about something that happened to him when he was a teenager that has driven his life um, for a long time afterwards.
2: So... Ross, tell us about what happened to you, when it happened, where you were, and just basically just take us through it. Um, Yeah,
6: so this was uh, 1998, January of 98. I was 17. Uh, This is in Baltimore, Maryland, and at the time was working at a video store called Video American. At the time, there were the block video stores, like the blockbusters, the Hollywood videos, Errol's was dying out um, that if you're going way back, but this was like this niche local indie owned by three dudes. Um, they had a couple chains and this is where you would go to find the stuff you couldn't get at the, at the chains. I started working there when I was 15. Mm. They paid me under the table. Um, and so I was the youngest one. And they like, they accepted me into their like very dysfunctional family. It was a Sunday and I was supposed to work, um, the, I was supposed to open and then leave it like three. And then it was going to, and then someone else was coming in from three to nine. And I had a, uh, a paper for history class on bureaucracy. <laughs>
0: that had, Perfect.
6: That I had to finish. I hadn't started. I needed to do it. And so the night before I called with the guy who was closing and I was like, I got to finish this thing. Do you mind opening? And he liked to drink. So I knew that I had to call him early in Saturday so he wouldn't get two hammered Saturday night to get there on Sunday. And at eight thirty, this guy comes in with a glass of wine and he's wandering around and he's drinking. And it, like, that's a normal, like, that's the normal thing. Mm. You see somebody come in with their dogs and drinking a glass of wine and looking for movies. And, and then this other guy came in. And immediately I knew that this guy was not a regular he was mm-hmm. going to ask for something that we didn't have. I, I just, I knew like, I just knew enough that, that it something was off. And, um, but, but he was like, he kept circling around. Like he felt like he was looking around, looking for things. Um, I went up to him a few times, asked if he needed any help. He said, no. So the guy with the wine ended up um, renting whatever he rented and left. And then the guy came up, the other one came up and he asked if we had any nasty movies mm. now the other the other store there's like two stores nearby at the time and the other store carried um the nasty movies as he referred to them and this was this store did not and i was like oh you want to go to the charles village store this we don't have those here um and he he just kind of kept on about that and we were like well we don't we don't have them and and the my co-worker at this time he just wants to get out of there so he's like Putting boxes back out in the store and taking mm-hmm. the trash out, and he's shutting down. Mm-hmm. And I'm at the register and I'm I'm running things with this guy, and then he asks, you know, what does it take to to start a membership? So now I'm pissed, and and so like that Spidey sense that I had goes away, and now I'm just pissed off because it's now what eight forty five or closing at nine. He's talking about a new membership. I'm going to have to do the whole thing, um from from start to start to finish, and I see him keep like reaching into his pants. Like behind him. And he's not, I can see that he's not wearing any underwear, which is a weird note. It's this part that I include in the story every time I've told it. I've told this a million times. And it just, it was odd to me. But it was odd to me in a way that was like, well, it's January and you're wearing sweats. I think he was wearing sweats. Wearing sweats, you're not wearing underwear. That's weird. I bet he's going to pull a gun. I remember having that thought very Mm. distinctly. And he was um, Hispanic. And so immediately I have the thought he's going to pull a gun. And then I recognize, oh, he's Hispanic. And I'm like, you are just a piece of shit. You're a piece of shit for racial profiling or assuming that this person is going to do this, you know, just because he looks like he wouldn't want to rent a movie here. Like, And these are all the things that are going through my head in real time. Mm -hmm. And then he pulls the gun out. Mm. And when he does... He, the nose of the gun gets stuck on his waistband oh. of his sweats. And so like, he goes to pull it and he gets stuck. And I remember laughing. Oh. And, and, no, and, and shit. like I'm one of those people who like, even at a funeral of a good, oh, right. a good friend, I like, Involuntary. I to, right. Yeah, I have to stand towards the back. Cause I know that I, 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 this is not where I process. I process elsewhere and I just sort of get through by, you know, finding things funny and, and, and laughter. Right and i laughed and that was not the right thing to do at that no. moment because he recognized in that moment the weakness that he showed or the inexperience or whatever it is mm-hmm. and so he had to now assert himself a bit more right. to kind of counterbalance right. that so i think that the gun would not have come at me as hard or as fast if i hadn't had had that reaction first so he pulls it out and he puts it to my hand and then he was like you know I'll dial down a bit of what he said, but basically, it's like, do you think this is really fucking funny? Don't you? Kind of that mm-hmm. gist of that, mm-hmm. um, and you know, insulting me and, and things like that. And immediately, you just do what you'd like. Your hands go up, and, and I'm, you know, I'm 17. I just mm-hmm. finished a paper on bureaucracy. Like, right. I, <laughs> this is not, and I was right. And so my brain is like, you were right. You were right mm-hmm. the whole time. You were right when this guy walked in. You were, you were right. And, and
2: we're, was it like a car accident in that? Things were processing quickly, but slowly in your head. Yeah, like, that you, totally. Y- you had you had good sort of awareness of everything.
6: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. That I think I should preface stop for a second and say I've told the story a million times, and I, I don't know how much of it is actually true to my memory at this point. Mm-hmm. Like I, right, I, right. I, now I'm telling a story, and in fact, I have at the bottom of my email a response from a paralegal at the Baltimore city police department telling me they have the police report that I gave and that they have on this guy and the, on this case from 98. And I just have to send the money in to get it. And I've had that for four years mm. and I've not done it because I don't want to open that box yet. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious how, like what actually I said mm-hmm. to the cop, what actually happened when I was behind the counter and, and, and once he brought me back around the front of the camera or front of the counter is when things I disassociate it. And I Mm -hmm. remember distinctly having that feeling, I think. But so at that point, he's like, give me all the fucking money. And so immediately I pull the register and I'm pulling cash out. Now I don't realize at this point that my coworker has no idea this is going on. He's actually out and around. And I don't even know why this guy in front of me has not thought of it. Yeah. Um, So he comes, my coworker comes around the corner and now all of a sudden he swings, he takes the gun off of me and he's putting it on the guy and he goes, you know, get behind the counter. And my coworker is older than I am. So he's like, if I'm 17, he must've been like 24, 25, something like
1: that. Ancient, pa- experienced.
6: Pa- pa- so like, this is an adult who's going to handle right. this situation. <laughs> and, and he was very calm. Like I felt like I wasn't calm. I think maybe in retrospect, I was probably just in shock, but he, I remember looking at him being like, I can't believe how he is. Like, he seems to be like negotiating with this guy, he's mm. like, "Look, man, you know, uh, don't don't do anything crazy. Like, we can get you out of here, you know, and don't shoot. Just be take it easy." So he comes around, and now we're both behind the counter, The guy's back now. Keep the other part of this is there's this huge window, behind, like the front of the store, so the traffic going by, people coming by on the street can see in. Mm. But it's January and it's right. dark. There's and nobody there. There's yeah. nobody there. Um, And so I, I'm start sort of ripping the cash out, and it's nothing. And I, you know, I give it to him. I put everything on the counter. Actually, I think, I think I pulled the drawers out, put them on top of the thing, on top of the counter, and he told me to take the cash out. So I took the cash out, put it on the counter, and he said, like, "Put it in my hand." So I put it in his hand, and he was very upset that there wasn't more money. So this Aww. is about the halfway point. Um, And then there's a there's like a bang, on the door, and. It it was clear to me afterwards, and, and later when I heard the cops talking, but not in the moment. But it seemed off in the moment. But it, it became clear later that that was a sign, like somebody else was there. So there was oh, someone at the door.
2: Gotcha. Almost,
6: I think, like a sign, like hurry up. Mm-hmm. So he goes, "Come around, come around to the to the to the front of the story. So we come around in the middle of the store, and he pushes me down because I'm you know I'm like. Buck 40, like I'm scrawny little high school kid. But so he pushes me down. He says, get on your knees. So we get on our knees oh. Oh, and he pushes me face down into the carpet. And when he does that, he puts the gun to the back of my head mm-hmm. oh and my he God. says, if um, he starts to say something like, If um, if you, if you don't, and then he trips. So oh I'm on God. the carpet and my hands are out like this. Face down, face smashed in, and that was the moment that I think, like, when I felt it on the back of my head. That's when I remember almost looking down on it, I was like, "Oh, this is it. This is mm-hmm. this. This is the end, right here."
2: Oh man, Jesus fucking. But God. I was,
6: but it was like, again, if if I'm remembering it correctly, like, it, there was just like a calmness to it. Like mm-hmm. I, I wasn't afraid in the way that we feel fear. I think. I think it was like, well, there's not like there's nothing I can do. Like this is right. this is what it is. But so. As he's starting to talk, he loses his balance. And but this is and this is gonna make a lot of sense, Todd, specifically. You've read more of my work, like why I write the way I write. Right. He loses his balance and catches himself and his boot smashes under my hand. And he like stumbles off and he goes, Oh, geez, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like one of those, like real quick, right. like he, he didn't right. mean to say that. And he, like, right. and then I was like, Oh, God, I'm not gonna die. I'm not right. gonna die. I'm going to be okay. Right. And there was another bang and he goes, get up off the floor. My coworker and I were in different aisles and um, he came back around and he was like, count to hundred. And if I hear you stop, I'll blow your brains out. I was like, well, how would you know if we stopped? Like in my head, I'm like I'm talking <laughs> back to him. Like, oh my nonsense. God. So he leaves my coworker and I start counting. By the time we get to like 18, I noticed that my coworkers jumped up. He's run to the front and he locks the door.
3: Mm-hmm. I get
6: up and I call the police. Um, and no, that's not what happened. No, no. What happened was the door opened at like 17 or 18. And, and my coworker got up and went to look cause the person coming in was like, hello, hello. And he's like, are you guys open? The guy out oh my front god. The guy, I came out earlier and the guy out front said you were closed. Oh, and man. Came back, so there was a second guy. Right, there, right. 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 Um, And we watch. were like, no, we just got held up. So then we locked the door and I called the cops and then we asked the guy to stay. And then the cops were there maybe a couple minutes later.
2: And so over the years, um, you're 41 now, right? Yes. So for the next 24 years, you've processed this, I think, in a lot of different ways. I know you've written about it a lot. And not always, not not that same scene. I know you've written that scene, but you also have just sort of approached a similar kind of moment time and again in yeah. your fiction. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that you've talked to professionals at some point um, about this too, or if you haven't, you should. Um, <laughs> do you think you'll ever stop being obsessed about it? Ever stop trying to figure out whatever it is you're trying to figure out?
6: That stuff burns away. And it's like mm-hmm. fog, like, and, and and unless you are punched, kicked, shot, stabbed, and have the, the externalized physical wounds to identify to someone else that you're hurting, that mm-hmm. you're injured, that you, um, uh, you know, that you're in, in turmoil, they forget about it because you look, right. normal. You look fine. Right. They don't see the other stuff going on because you also don't talk about it. You actually avoid it. So for the longest time with that going on, um I think I, I had a really hard time figuring out with my writing how to tell that story. And and I I actually I think I've only successfully written a really short, short story about it that was accepted and then the journal went under. So I don't even know that it even <laughs> ever got ever got seen seen another, the late days. Another story um, of life
2: fucking with you. yeah. yeah. <laughs>
6: But, um, but the divide of, I think the, from the moment of me being obsessed with it and it just kind of being consuming and not being able to get traction with it in my work to the point where I was able to um, was when I allowed myself to imbue empathy into that
3: scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: Um, because up until that point, all of my work, like for, for Up until quite recently, I might say, like I was always playing with form and structure and language. And and again, I'm like playing with the external parts of the story and then really just jamming hard on maybe the violence of the story or the shock Mm -hmm. of the story or the excessiveness of the story but it lacks always lacks. And I'm saying this, you know, earnestly like lacked character. It lasts substance. It's mm. a reader is only going to take so much abuse of like how you break a story and how many numbers you put in it. And you know, all the weird tricks, aesthetic tricks you want to do to it. I was running from the story. Like I was, I was running from actually trying to empathize with what I, I went through, what my coworker went through what the dude coming in. It's January. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he was trying to cover, cover bills. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to hit up, a- video story because you're trying to get rich and and you know catch a body head to houston like you're 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 trying you're trying to cover cover something i guess i kind of always been writing in a genre and i've never thought about that genre i've never let just sort of the full weight of what could be and just tell the fucking story and just like Mm -hmm. just lean into a story um and so once i started doing that all the aesthetic tricks and um, all of the wordplay and and all the things that I would kind of tap dance into a story because I was not going to where I needed to go for it to matter. And I allowed myself to, to go there is, is when I noticed, when I felt I noticed a huge shift in my work and just sort of being wow. really happy with it mm-hmm. um, because I was now just writing for the sake of writing, just telling stories. And in the last book that I just wrote, was probably the, there's a scene that takes place, Todd, right? It was the scene that takes place in the convenience store. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, it's, it's a, it's a really brutal, really, really kind of violent, brutal scene. And that's the closest to writing what happened. And what did I do? I externalized all of the stuff for these characters. I made it really big. I made it really visceral because I didn't have that.
3: Mm-hmm. And so for a
6: lot, for a long time after, um, uh, like maybe four or five years after the robbery, I remember being resentful that I wasn't shot. Like rese- I would have these thoughts mm-hmm. like I just, oh, wish, wow. I just wish, I just like, like wish I could have like
2: because your own your own survivor's guilt in a way, you know what I mean. Of,
6: and and so like processing that through writing, that's where that divide took place between like the, the me playing all the. You know, wild stuff on the page, and trying to tell a story that was going to shock you, rather than tell a story that was going to move you. And and the difference oh, it's was,
2: a, it's a great, it's a great sympathy. line, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean that that's 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 the key about fiction, right? The difference between shock you and move you. That's so so smart, Ross. Yeah. Well, it's also
0: interesting to me, and specifically to the crime genre, because there's something about crime. As opposed to you know a lot of the other genres that we've talked about, I mean uh, most obviously like fantasy. Uh, with crime, the the point is the reality, right? I mean the point mm-hmm. is is what mm-hmm. actually happened or the 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 sort of uh, undeniable human aspects of it, right? Like one person is desperate enough to break a law or to violate somebody else's body or private property or you know something. And I, I, I what I hear you saying, Ross, is that when when you stopped trying to, when you, when you just told what happened, you know, when you just made it a story, yeah. or you just externalized and you just did the, it, it made it more real in a way mm-hmm. It stop mm-hmm. trying to decorate it. It became more of a crime story. And, and, right. and that's, that, that's the biggest lesson to me is like, oh right. Crime is not a place to decorate. Crime is not a place to elaborate or to be fanciful. Crime yeah. is a genre that is uh, nuts and bolts. It's, it's trying to be as basic as possible in some way as human as possible.
1: Right. Mm. It's examining how did this happen? Like to me, that's yeah. the central question when I hear about a crime. It's like, what are all the forces that came together that made this yeah.
0: moment occur? Mm-hmm. Before you even started writing about it, did the experience change the way you watched violence in movies mm. or read mm-hmm. about it in, in books? Yeah. Or, or, or do you did you did you yeah. immediately know when? when it was false, you know, or when it was, it was done wrong. I was became obsessed with it. I mean, I yeah. got
6: home that night. I got home that night, talked to my parents. I never forget. They both dropped off the couch, sat on the floor next to me and just had me tell them what happened. I went to bed, I turned on the TV and what's on TV, but the greatest shootout of all time, the ending of the movie heat.
3: Oh and so you know,
6: <laughs> here's this and here's Tom Sizemore character picking up the little kid running across the fountain with his you know uh uh, m16 and it's like this just wild shootout taking place and and it was it was like i couldn't escape it like it now Mm -hmm. suddenly was everywhere Uh every channel that i turned to fight club came out a couple years after that i became obsessed with that but like fight club that's a good example the book and the film I got really angry at the people who really loved it because of the, I, I really felt like they didn't get it because mm-hmm. they were into mm-hmm. it for the violence of it. Yes, And mm-hmm. I was like, it's not about that.
1: I'm just really curious how this fell in like your identity as a creative artist, you know? Um, but there's no way you weren't making this cinematic, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's almost like I would venture a guess that it's hard to write because it's like too it's, it seems too good, you know, like mm-hmm. it makes too much sense. Even though like him tripping and saying sorry is just a tell that he's still a human being, you know, like it feels written. And so you're writing it as you're living it. And so, you know, the nonfiction aspect is almost impossible. That, that's yeah. what I would feel. That's
6: yeah, a great I, point. I, it feels that way. I mean, I think, I think if I wrote about it, I think that it would be about memory Mm -hmm. and, and trauma and the truth. And, and I think that if if I go down that path, it's going to want to be to find out what happened to the guy Mm -hmm. and see how much I can find out about it. And so I I know, I think I know the one that I'm going to going to write, but I'm not ready for it yet. I don't think Mm -hmm. my students, um, I, I, I love when they, when they really will try their hand at, at some big genre pieces, but I'm always really, um, Uh, I I feel bad for them when they write crime, because it's the one thing that I I really kind of hold their feet to the fire on because most Mm -hmm. of theirs, you know, characters are committing a crime because their mom's sick and they have to pay for the medicine or they have to pay for tuition like those are the two, like Mm -hmm. driving narratives and then Mm -hmm. there's never any consequence to the to whatever crimes they commit to either the other people in the story or consequence to them. They just sort of like operate as, you know, Thomas the Engine just moving through, uh, you know, Sodor and getting to my destination.
2: Oh, man, you know it's hard to listen to ross talk about this um because i've read i've read all the versions that he's written about it you know he wrote about it a little bit in his book zombie which you guys can still get it's from soho press um in some of his short stories um ross and i worked on a script together i think it shows up there um you know to know ross is to know a kind good gentle guy um but also to know a person who's got something not far underneath the skin that makes you think, that's the last guy on earth I want to fuck with. <laughs> um, but to find out that, that that aspect of it comes not from his own anger, but from his own fear, from his own trauma, from the moment of knowing I don't ever want to be powerless again. It's a lot, man. It's a lot. I really appreciate Ross being so forthright um, and vulnerable to talk about this. I know, I know that was hard for him.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, something we've discussed is at the heart of a lot of crime, you know, is it's a violation, you know, like it's crossing a boundary, even when it seems small, even if it's happening, like you can't really see the ripples of how it's going to affect you. um, Right. Like if you read
0: the headline about this, right, it would only say a video store held up for $40. Mm -hmm. If there was even a headline, no one would even really write Mm -hmm. about this. Right. But here Ross is, you know, this obviously, you know trauma the ripples throughout his entire life and how that's influenced him and um, you know and I think in an amazing way he's turned it into this empathetic mission you know where if anything he feels empathy for you know this real human who was, you know, on the other side of the gun, pointing it at him, but who was going through something that was ultimately very human and, and somewhat
2: understandable. But uh, but here's the thing, like, and this is the American problem, you guys. I, I I don't I don't want to say this too broadly, but this is the American problem. It's a 17 year old with a gun. It's it's like <laughs> every other country, you can have that 17 year old. But if you walk into a video store with a (laughs) spork, you're not going to traumatize someone for the rest of their life. But here in Baltimore, at that that day, and then every single day subsequent to that, a 17-year-old can get a gun and walk into yeah. a video yeah. store. Of sort
0: of the right of Americans, right? I mean, we, we are built on this notion that we have the right to uh, to carry a gun or own a gun, at least, depending on what state you're in, and that you have the the sort of right to violence uh, to defend yourself. Um, you know, it's that Old West mentality. We're, we're a country of gunslingers. We um, And it's part of our awful, messy but democratic
2: uh, process well, of yeah. creating our own know. laws,
0: but, representing but, ourselves.
2: But how, I don't know, how democratic is it if you got the I gun know. and no one else does? That's not
1: I think crime is the American genre, right? Um, and that's, it goes all the way back. You know, it goes all the way back. Like how did we white people get this country, like through violence, right? And so, we're all complicit in that and we're, it's still a story we're unfolding is like, how do we, how do we continue? But how do we like also get out of this, you know? (laughs) And we don't know how, you know, like our, our solutions are all law and order based, you know? So yeah, giving everybody a gun seems the worst possible solution, but it also follows our American logic, you know, to a really disturbing degree. So yeah, I <laughs> I said to you guys off, off camera the other day, like, all heroes are criminals and all criminals are heroes. And that is the American story. You know, like, to make it in America, you have to be kind of bad. And we're all grappling with that all the time.
0: Right, because we're constantly wrestling with this tension between which laws are good mm-hmm. And which laws deserve to be broken mm-hmm. because they are unfair, right? I mean, if you're living in an era of slavery, there were obviously incredibly immoral, unjust laws that were, you know, being enacted and enforced horrifically. Um, and so, whatever lens you're looking through your current moment, there's got to be the equivalent of those laws being enacted right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the process of uh, playing out the process of a representative democracy. We're we're trying to figure out which laws are fair constantly, Um, you know, because we don't have laws from God. We don't believe in laws from a monarchy. We're not we're making it up for ourselves. And so, crime, as a genre, is testing that out, you know, imaginatively and through fiction. I feel like we're constantly playing with these notions of what what laws uh, should be broken. uh, Where do we agree with the criminals, and then what laws need to be reinforced? Where we need to agree with. The cop or the detective or just the average citizen who takes the law into their own hands
1: right and who gets justice and how
2: by the same token i am filled filled (laughs) with violent fantasies (laughs) of the of the things and the people that that i think are out to get me and and i'm not talking about like my paranoia that's a different animal i'm talking about like you know, the white supremacist who's out there saying the, the Jews will not replace us. Oh, yeah? Come on by. I, I got something for you. You're like, I'm filled with that sort of Wild West desire mm,
3: to not exact me.
2: vengeance. <laughs> and that's, that is... That is not. That's, healthy. that's the most yeah, American thing in the world, it. though. <laughs> no, it, it it
0: does. But you, you mean, I mean, I can say the same thing because I I I don't think I identify with that. But then I also think what every video game is
3: mm-hmm.
0: somebody with a gun shooting other people. Right? So there is something right. we, especially as Americans, but maybe something human. We we do we are attracted to uh, living out these sort of fantasies, hopefully in a safe way but um (laughs) crime certainly crime as as a genre certainly plays to that enjoyment right like i I read an elmore leonard book partly because it's it's fun Mm -hmm. you watch a tarantino movie because it's like yeah yeah,
5: i was
1: just uh, gonna say like the kill bill fantasy like of course like there's no denying that that is very powerful um but i think at the end of the day a lot of people they just want the Wonder Woman Island with no violence and all women who are nice, you know. Like that's <laughs> that. We, yeah,
2: the, that I mean, that sounds that sounds great. <laughs> Does that sound like a great story though? <laughs> I mean, she's like, got to
0: leave the island. She has to cover leave the charge? island in order for it to be a good comic book, though, <laughs> right? right? Like you don't. You, if, you, yeah, if if everything was just hunky dory and everybody had so much pa- uh, you know, equal. Um, uh, rights and the, it, 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 yes, I want to live in that world, but do I want to yeah. read about so it think, or watch a movie the about it?
1: Here's the <laughs> yeah. this is my, what I feel. Yeah. is like L- if we're gonna have all this crime, if things are gonna be so terribly, you know, swirling around all the time, like we have to make it into stories to survive it. You know what I mean? That's just the coping mechanism. Um, it's sort of like an acceptance of violence and a trying to take it back but we're not going to accept it as just a bland stasis. It's got to have some momentum and some joy involved.
2: And See, I, I, yes, I agree. And as the expert <laughs> sustained, you are allowed to believe that. Um, but I also believe that in order for there to be happiness, there has to be the inverse. Like you have to find happiness. Happiness is not just delivered unto you. There has to be something that gives you happiness. And I think, being free of some bad thing often makes you feel pretty good about things because otherwise like if everyone was just happy someone <laughs> would fuck so it cynical. up right someone would i think fuck he, it you know
0: I, I would actually replace every time you use the word happy with just or justice because sure. you could almost say the same thing right like how can you have justice without testing it without you know
2: yeah well that's yeah. it's true yeah I mean I think that that's absolutely true. And and look here here's here's what I believe is the final <laughs> word, Julia, as the expert. Um is that we need crime. We need to read about it to understand that which seems mm-hmm. unbelievable to our lives. Most of us are going to live our lives without being the victim of a violent crime. We're going to live our lives up being the victim of a profound um Financial crime, you know, without getting beaten or mugged or you know or have our house burglarized, um, and so we need crime to be able to look at our lives and say, mm-hmm. well, at least I'm not that person, you know. We need to have that that comparison for better or for worse. I think we need that, um, but also we need these books to provide order to chaos, even when it is, and not I would
0: much prefer. Investigating these issues and, and, and experiencing crime via fiction mm-hmm. than actually having to face somebody with a gun uh,
2: personally, uh, and I yeah or um, or a yeah. ghost. No, I, How about no a ghost? Way. Are, are no, we scared of ghosts? They're not
0: real, Todd. They're not real. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and music supervised by Jordan Katz. Justin Alvarez is our producer for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.